You are listening to The Current Podcast, the official podcast of UC San Diego's IT Services Department. I'm your host, Miguel Rodriguez. Today is Wednesday, February 9th. We have an amazing interview this week with Karthik Shashadri, a world-famous sitar player and head of the Indian Music Program right here at UC San Diego. Before the interview, we're going to play a brief clip from a performance Karthik gave a few years ago. This is Mark Herzberger, Communications Manager in IET Services. Today, I'm joined by Karthik Sasadri. He's a virtuoso composer and educator. He heads up the Indian Music Program here at UC San Diego. He has performed all over the world, including famous Carnegie Hall. Uh, he's been featured in publications worldwide, such as the LA Times, Washington Post, and Songlines. Karthik, welcome to our podcast. How are you? Thank you, Mark. It's a pleasure being here. Now, there are some 3,000 faculty members from UC San Diego that we could get on this podcast, but just upfront real quick, what is your connection uh, with us here in IT services? Well, my connection uh, to the IT services is first through the music and the 3,000 faculty members you mentioned. And on a personal level, uh, it's uh, from my partner who's there working for behind the scenes uh, as a project manager at different duties aside to that. That's right. Julie Steele, we had her on the podcast uh, last year. What is the music that you specialize in? Well, the music I uh, have been performing since the age of six is Indian classical music. It's a very ancient tradition uh, that dates back roughly two to 3,000 years back to the temples. And just as a very brief historical perspective, the music began from the incantations of the Veda, which are the scriptural verses that are taught by year from a master to a student. And the importance of those scriptures, which kind of form the early metaphysics of uh, Indian classical music is that everything is learned by ear. So it was never committed to writing. And so the idea was that actually how you say it or how you intone it becomes much more important than what actually the content of the text is. So that's where you see the earliest origins of the music. And then from there, it has developed, uh, you know, into the different courts and, you know, of the kings and prince and princesses. And then obviously to major concert halls, Etc. Etc. Yes. I think isn't there one instrument in particular that you specialize in? Yes, I do. Uh, the sitar. And uh, what what is a sitar? Okay, so the sitar, as you know, is a twenty-stringed lute. It's a it's a family of lute is in is all over the world. There are families of instruments that have a big belly and a long neck. Okay. And in the case of a sitar, it's a pretty intricate instrument because it not only has twenty strings but it also has 20 metal frets that are running up and down the whole instrument. And then 
You also have 13 sympathetic strings, which actually run under the frets, which are curved. So the music is played on the sitar, uh, where you can also bend the string on the fret. And the reason that is important in our music is Indian classical music, even as an instrumentalist, you are always supposed to exemplify the singing voice. That is the main ideal of our music. So it's a little bit different than the Western perspective, for example, where the voice trains to be in a particular age and the voice becomes an instrument. But here, the voice comes first. So every musician, even as a sitarist, has to have a very good sense of singing what they are going to play. So that becomes very important. What's the most challenging thing about playing the sitar? Well, it's both the instrument and the music. So uh, briefly about each. The music itself is quite complex in the sense that the tonal system in Indian classical music is divided into 22 parts. I'm speaking about the octaves here. So if you go from C to C on a piano, you would not just have 12 equally tempered notes, but uh, you would have 22 in the Indian scheme. And actually you're supposed to perceive 66 as a person who's really well-trained hourly. So that is the main aspect of it, to develop that aural sensibility, because the music is predominantly melodic and rhythmic. So it's diametrically the opposite of Western tradition, where it's much more about harmony, counterpoint, chords, change of key. So those things are completely absent in Indian classical music. Uh, The emphasis is really on heightening a particular melody And that is done by the concept known as raga. That's one of the central concepts to our music. And that is a selection of intervals, which has a specific ascending and descending movement. And on top of that, it has other intricacies of the notes that are flatter or sharper than flat, or sharper or flatter than sharp. So it can become very complicated. So that's the first part of it. The second aspect is the rhythm part of it. One also has to have a very sound knowledge of uh, rhythm because we perform in cycles of beats, which run from a simple three-beat cycle to a 108-beat cycle. And we also love to perform, I mean, for some crazies like me who are thinking as well as expressive musicians, to perform in fractional cycles, like 17 and a half or 13 and a half. So it can make for some pretty challenging improvisations. So we have to improvise within the grammar of the raga. The raga is a very specific musical entity. And the rhythm part, uh, which is the cyclical rhythm part, is something uh, of a faculty that we have to develop that is also an important part of the tradition. So now that's the musical part of it. Now the instrument part of it, the sitar, as you know, I mentioned the strings and the frets, you really have to muscle up for many, many years, practicing and developing the strengths and control to reproduce whatever the music is telling you to do. So that's an enormous sort of uh, years of training and bleeding hands and Bleeding fingers. <laughs> so, yes. What what age were you say when you first picked up a sitar, and then what what was it that got you interested that that you really wanted to you know commit yourself to that kind of training and learning? Well, I was very lucky because I grew up in a home uh, that was very uh, much into arts and music. My mother is not a professional singer, but an accomplished uh, singer of a different tradition of classical music in India, which loosely belongs to the South. Uh, But I embarked on the Northern journey, which is also the West, the North and the Eastern parts of India. And the sitar is indigenous to that part. So it, it was my father who took... Uh, started to study that instrument. This was when I was about five years old. And the story has it that the person who came to teach him, you know, used to come about two, three times a week. And my father would take lessons. And then uh, I remember just going into his lessons and just falling asleep 
I pretty much learned all my music there, I think. And apparently my first mentor, who was my father's teacher, he had taught my father a very complicated piece. And the story is, I don't remember this, obviously, but the story is one day it was he came home and he heard someone playing it very accomplished. And so it happened to be me. So I had picked up a lot of the stuff by ear. So he really took a lot of interest in me and started to nurture me. And he was an amazing teacher. And uh, I started to perform soon after that at the age of six. And I was pretty much establishing my career all over India. Yes. On that note, when did you, how do I ask this? When did you realize that, you know, you could make a career out of playing and being involved with music? I don't think I still have. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. (laughs) It's a bit of a shocker because when I took music upon myself, I never thought about it as a career. You know, I did music only for music. And no matter what distractions I had as a child, I mean, I had to still go to school. I had my formal education that was going alongside. But the musical training happened, you know, side by side. And uh, no matter if I was playing marbles or running on the streets or, you know, uh, flying kites, which is a huge thing in India, or playing cricket, wonderful British legacy there. So one thing I had to do is return to music every single day. It's something, it was like a, a moth to a fire, as they say in India, a flame. So I had to get back to it. And I don't know. So it's just something that evolved. And I feel now looking back at it, if one gives very sincerely to something with absolutely no sort of expectations, you probably might with good grace make something of it. Yeah. And we noted at the intro, you know, you performed uh, all around the world and and it's, you know, several decades worth, I think, of performing. So what are some of the, you know, memories or even like pinch yourself moments of the places you performed or some of the experiences that you can recall? So here I have to interject another little biographical information. So as I was performing in all over India, one of the greatest uh, masters of uh, sitar, Pandit Ravi Shankar, I'm sure you've heard of him because the Beatles took to him and a lot of great people became associated with him from different genres of music. And uh, he was uh, very curious to hear me and I wanted to, you know, uh, meet him as well. And this was about, I was about eight years old when he came home to hear me. And after that, I kept in touch with him. And in 1974, I started to study with him in India and also tour with him all over in India. Then in the 80s, I came to the West because I decided to continue touring here and spreading the message of our music. And at the same time, sort of spending time with Pandit Ravi Shankar because he was mostly in the West at that time. So that it was a really a, a blessing for me because I could always chase him, you know, no matter where he was, whether he was in Chicago or London or no matter where he was, I was always able to avail of his benefits. And then I started to soon perform with him on stage. So different spaces all over the world, uh, you know, the Middle East, Far East, Europe, uh, Australia, and then my own solo career you know, over here started to become very uh, known. So many of these venues called me for my solo recitals. I hadn't planned on asking this, but I just thought of it. So um, what other um, musical interests might you have? Like, do you play any so-called Western instruments or among like American rock or, or whatever? Do you have any interest there that, you know, driving in the car, that kind of thing? What, what's on your radio? Well, Mark, I, I just believe that there is good music and not so good. Okay. <laughs> I pretty much listen to everything that catches my ear. And I don't have any restrictions on what I think is good or bad. There's a lot of bad classical music and there's a lot of wonderful, you know, 
other types of music. Even the word classical is very fuzzy to me. I don't know what that means. I guess it's some sort of a pedagogical evolution. It's sort of a loaded political term. That's a whole other interview. But I do think that in the case of Western art music, I developed a fascination for it in India because we had a huge record collection and a few recordings of Western art music. We had stuff by Bach and Beethoven and Chopin. And, and there was something that caught my ear about the world of harmony and counterpoint. So when I came to the West in the 80s, I also started to study formally, you know, composition and sort of try to compose pieces you know, for an orchestra and sitar or other sort of uh, approaches to music. So my interests are very varied and uh, I'm well-trained in that as well as from a compositional point of view. Okay, maybe let's transition to the teaching a little bit. When did you start teaching? And then how did you end up at UCSD and how long have you been here? Okay, so speaking about chasing my mentor, Mm-hmm. all over the world. So he ended up in San Diego. And I used to live in uh, the East Coast in the Washington, D.C. metropolitan area. So one day the phone rang and he said, I'm planning to settle down in San Diego. And uh, do you want to come and you know, uh, live here as well? And we can travel and tour and train and all that. And I immediately said yes. And I moved to San Diego with it. With, I had never visited San Diego, by the way. So I moved within a month, I think. We had to start our home there. This and that. So, <laughs> so we, after I came here, I was touring with him again all over the world. You know? So when I moved here, you know, I think I performed in uh, Civic Auditorium, or I don't remember where it was. But one of the uh, faculty members from the uh, music department, Rand Steiger, he happened to listen to me and he was very inspired and instrumental, no pun intended, (laughs) in having me teach there. So I was invited and I started this in 1996. So we are running roughly on the 26th year right now. What are the topics and classes that you teach at UC San Diego? So my Indian music teaching sessions are much more about a hands-on approach to the music. So the university provides sitars and the accompanying drum, which is the tabla. But students are invited to you know, bring whatever that's malleable and like a violin, you can produce pretty much the notes in between like a black and a white key on a piano. And the same thing with a wind instrument. It's very friendly for reproducing what Indian classical music does. So I really wanted to whet the appetite of a lot of uh, students who were very curious about this tradition. Initially, there were 12 people in my class, and now it's one of the largest in the country. We have about 130 to 150 students each quarter, and it's really a thriving scene. And that is how it's it's been going on. You said they are in your class, hands-on? Yes, and alongside with that, I also make it very, uh, you know, uh, flexible to the extent I interject as much theory and history. And so they have to do both in some sense. What was it like, you know, a couple of years ago at this point when we had to make this transition to a lot of the Zoom-based teaching? I've always wondered how that was in general for the teaching staff, but especially something like music. So what was that like? Well, initially it was a shocker. You know, I think we all faced that because the digital format is never the ideal format to teach music and ideally you want to engage with the students directly and see who's doing what and give them individual attention if it's needed but there was something interesting about the Indian music tradition because everything is vocalized as I was telling you earlier the melodies are all sung out and that's what we then play on the instrument the drums are recited with a mnemonic language and that language is what translates into the drum so then I thought about it and I uh, also 
came up with my own pedagogical techniques of trying to make that very uh, accessible to the students who were taking the course digitally. So I think given the uh, sort of complexity of being on Zoom between the tradition itself and my own sort of approach to it, I, I think it was successful. Yeah. And have any students, you know, gone on themselves to become teachers or performers such as yourself that you can think of? Well, you know, the university format is ideally not a format where you can produce concert musicians. Okay. So it's a place where people come and they get to have a pretty good understanding of, you know, the tradition. What are raga? What is the thala? Uh, they learn a composition that they have to perform at the end of the quarter. Uh, so there are a lot of challenges and they have a lot of fun. And the ensemble itself is, you know, we have a performance once a year at the Conrad Purvis Auditorium and they get so much into it and they make my day, you know, I just love being with my kids. And uh, so they are musicians in the sense of being part of a, an ensemble and performing, but not something that they would take on, you know, professionally from the university. If they want to pursue that path, I have had some students come to me privately and they still take lessons. That's a whole other beast. Yeah. What's the most challenging aspect of the teaching that you do at UC San Diego? Well, the most challenging thing is, you know, many students have never, you know, learned music, have never thought about music in any serious way, but they become interested in the culture and then they start to think about, hey, this sounds cool, you know, and Bollywood is a huge scene, as you know, it's okay. one of the largest film industries in the world. So students are quite familiar with the music from various, and the Beatles and, you know, the pop groups that took it up on and then the jazz enthusiasts have always been aware of Coltrane and Miles Davis and other greats, John McLaughlin. So all kinds of people who taken up jazz, the classical end of the people in the department for example, the minimalists, um, composers like Lamont Young, Philip Glass, with whom I've worked extensively, you know, they all sort of, every student has come across some sort of a thing, but they've never been able to actually engage with an instrument. Uh, so when you're starting from the very beginning of, you know, teaching someone the alphabet and getting them to a performing level, where they have to learn a composition and a piece, it's the most thrilling experience as well as the most challenging one. And when you see them excited and motivated, that's, probably the, the greatest reward you can have in teaching this music. For you, what has the touring and performing situation kind of been like as the age of COVID has evolved? Yeah, that's been a tough one, Mark, because all musicians, we've gone, you know, digital. We are doing Zoom concerts and uh, talks and mostly uh, lecture demonstrations and things like that. But performances, I've restricted the Zoom part of performing because I don't think it's very convincing mm. because you have to see the sitar and the tabla in the with each other and you really that's not palpable in a you know a zoom setting so when people come to a concert you see them engage on so many different levels yeah. and it's a mutual process really the audience are the ones who make the concert really i think mm. because it's you learn from them all the time and that's the same with the process of teaching you learn so much so that part i miss you know because until everything gets back to uh, normal whatever the new normal is going right. to be it's a little precarious at this time. So I've, I've heard that from like stand-up comedians too. Just like it's the audience that they yeah. like they can do a Zoom show and it you know they reach a bunch of different fans, but they hundred percent all talk about like the kind of the audience and 
that's a key piece. Completely. Yeah. So we always wind down with our guests, some uh, non-work stuff too. So um, what do you do for fun, you know, the weekend or nights and evenings or downtime? Well, my um, greatest pleasures come from spending time with my family. And my mother, I'm very fortunate. She just turned 90 in December. She's been with me since 1996 after uh, I lost my father. And uh, that's one of my greatest joys. I have my daughter from my first marriage. She is at UC Berkeley, finishing up this year. (laughs) It just seems she missed a whole two years because of that. Then I have Julie in my life. And of course, she's abundant joy and we are very close. And we have some wonderful pups, which make our lives very rich. We are huge other being parents. Then we have a koi pond with about 12 to 14 fish. And so we engage with different beings. Then we love going uh, outings, uh, camping, uh, anything with nature is always welcome. Okay. Well, Karthik, we really appreciate your time here on our podcast. So fascinating to learn about your genre of music with the sitar, but then also, you know, just kind of teaching that and uh, really appreciate it. So glad you could uh, join us. It's been a pleasure, Mark. Thank you so much. Thank you, Karthik. Now, don't forget to join the Tech Talk next Wednesday, February 16th, with Sarah Parnell from the IT Services Office of Business Intelligence and Analytics on Communities of Practice. Learn what a community of practice is, where to find current UC San Diego communities, and how you can start one of your own. Remember, Tech Talks happen the third Wednesday of each month from 11.30 a.m. to 12.20 p.m. You can find the link and more on Blink or directly at blink.ucsd.edu slash go slash tech talks. I sure hope you're enjoying this podcast. Remember to let your fellow IT services staff members know that this podcast exists. Get everyone to subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you can get your podcasts. This podcast is a collaborative effort, and we want to hear from you. If you have any ideas for podcasts or topics, send them to me at its-podcast at ucsd.edu. That's it for today. Keep an ear out for the next episode of The Current Daily.